Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Eric Clark. Today is March 4th, after the close on Thursday, March 4th, for the next episode of Mega Brands. I'm super excited about this episode because selfishly, we have some exposure to this theme that is quote unquote fintech. And who better to talk about the theme than a specialist in the industry? My guest today is Warren Fisher from Minole Capital. They are a fintech specialist and they do some separate accounts as well as run a long short hedge fund. Warren's been in the industry a very long time, over 25 years, spent about 20 years at Goldman Sachs, was on the growth team there, managing over about 30 billion in assets, was responsible for the fintech space. You know, what better time to talk about this theme than after, you know, a pretty big correction in the markets and in particular the NASDAQ names and anything that was super high beta technology or iconic use the innovation style factor. You know, let's call it the ARC ETFs are kind of my proxy for that innovation factor. Interestingly, interest rates were, they kind of bottomed at 50 basis points in uh, August of last year, and they've been trickling up ever since. But on February 12th or so, the trajectory of rates really changed and went upward. And that happens to be the time when technology and growth stocks tended to peak for the year after having a, you know, a really good run early in the year and have gone straight down. So the NASDAQ's now had a 10% correction that innovation factor using you know, some of the ARCs, ETFs as kind of a benchmark, those things are down anywhere from 20 to 25%. So in about 12 trading days. So things have moved very swiftly down as interest rates have moved up and as people have focused on the recovery theme and the economy kind of reopening and the vaccinations getting more broad adoption. So money has definitely rotated out of the innovation factor and the growth stocks and has gone more towards the value and the cyclicals. But the good news is some of those names now have, have some air has come out of the area. 
And there's some pretty interesting opportunities, particularly in the fintech space. Just as a reminder, my name is Eric Clark again. I run the Dynamic Brands Strategy. We uh, sub-advise a mutual fund called the Dynamic Brands Fund. And we focus on global consumer spending because it's a $40 trillion a year phenomenon. It's certainly large and predictable enough that it warrants some dedication in a portfolio. We do that by identifying and investing in the most relevant brands that are serving consumers. And we have a lot of flexibility to adapt to whatever the market throws at us. That's why it's called dynamic brands. Okay, so let's turn it over to Warren here. Hey, Warren, how are you? Great, Eric. How are you doing today? I'm good. Well, it's been an interesting 12 days for sure. And for anything growth, I mean, the, the value stocks barely have budged from, from the highs and the growth has struggled a little bit. But, you know, we talked a little bit before the podcast started, you know, those stocks were super hot and people were very aggressive buyers, lots of call buyers. So a lot of speculative action in that area. So I think it's probably healthy long-term that we've we've kind of taken some air out of that, you know, I don't want to say bubble because I don't think there's a bubble in these stocks, but there certainly was some sentiment extremes that have now been maybe changed a little bit and, and pulled back. Well, there's certainly, uh, we talked about it in our recent first quarter newsletter, but retail trading has never been hotter. And we're not going to talk about the retail trading environment now, but whether it's Wall Street bets or Reddit, some of these meme stocks, certainly retail and Robinhood have been on the front pages of the Wall Street Journal for the last couple of weeks, and they are driving some very eye-opening moves on certain stocks. Yes, they are. Well, I mean, let's, let, I think let's start, you know, fintech can mean different things to different people. Maybe we should start off by just, you know, talking to you a little bit about what is it that you are focused on and kind of what's your definition of fintech? And then we can get into kind of what you see in the space. Yeah, no, that's great. That's a great place to start. So um, maybe to start out, we define fintech as anything utilizing technology to improve an established process. And that's a very broad definition. And it, it goes from the derivative of changes, the, the market makers, which would be more traditional financials. But for us, the quintessential fintech business is the payment space. And we're going to talk a lot about payments today. Um, you know, one of the things that we're attracted to the payment space is that they're not recession proof, nothing really is, but they are recession resistant. And so we find that the payment space is chock full of, of companies that are secularly growing. I try to avoid cyclical companies. And so, you know, we do not own what I'll call traditional financials that you could own if you were to buy the the SLF, the ETF for financials. We avoid credit risk interest rate sensitivity. Uh, we own no banks or insurance companies. So no traditional financials that you would say are, are balance sheet risky or opaque by nature. Also on the flip side, you could own the XLK if you wanted a, a tech ETF. We don't own Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, none of your kind of big tech names. So we're really a specialist, a hybrid player, if you will. We just focus in on fintech. And for us, you know, the fintech space is very broad. Certain people call it personal finance or robo-advisors. Others say digital currency like Bitcoin and blockchain are fintech. There's reg tech, there's insured tech. There's a whole slew of what I'll call digital banks or alternative finance companies. And then, you know, for us, 
again, the quintessential fintech business is the payment space. And so we have a lot of exposure there. We find that those businesses are wonderful. They hit our traits that we look for in companies. And so for us, within that fintech universe, payments really is kind of number one and paramount for us. Got it. Okay. I mean, it was interesting. I don't know if you heard that, you know, JP Morgan, I can't remember if it was on his earnings call or, or in an interview. I mean, you know, when the CEO of JP Morgan Chase talks about the disruption that's happening in fintech, I mean, <laughs> that tells you. Yeah, so Jamie Dimon, we talked about it in our newsletter. Jamie Dimon on the fourth quarter call said fintech should have JP Morgan employees scared shitless. <laughs> and that's exactly what he said on the call. And uh, we thought it was just a great quote. We talked a little bit about just being nimble and fintech. If you want to kind of look at the area as a whole, it's one, they're showing secular growth. Two, they're just nimble in nature. They're not behemoths. A lot of banks, traditional banks would be considered old school, traditional financials. They really need to be able to adapt to current times and fintech. A lot of them are competitors that are, are eating traditional banks lunch. We can get into that a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And just so everybody knows, you know, we'd love to talk names in here. And I'm certainly happy to talk some names that we own in the Brands Fund. But because of certain regulations, particularly on the LP side, Warren can't really talk specifically about the names. And, you know, obviously we're not making any investment recommendations today. We're just talking about this important theme and the growth that's happening and the disruption that's happening to many of the legacy players. And I'm sure that now that you're on the radar screen of Jamie Dimon and, and B of A, et cetera, I mean, they are making strides. I'm just not sure if it's too late. As the guy who focuses on consumers, you know, once we have a brand that's kind of our go-to brand and we're super loyal and there's some brand love there, it's really hard to shake us away from that. So they're going to continue to have some issues, not because they don't have the ability to get technology, but because there's already a dominant leader in the space. So maybe we can just talk about, you know, you have a great presentation that we can make available on my site as well as yours, give the sites out at the end of the podcast, but it's called the death of cash. It's a really good deck. You know, if you want to kind of talk about your views on that and why you put that together, I think that's probably a another good place to head. Yeah. I mean, just, we were talking about Jamie Diamond at JP Morgan and just looking at banks for a second, you know, back in the day, um, we're both old enough to remember banks used to give away, you know, toasters if you opened up a new account. And I think the numbers, at least last year, it's roughly two to 4% of US consumers will change their bank account any given year. So once you're with a bank, you're likely to stay with that bank, which goes with the whole idea of cross-selling. And so once you open up an account, and if you're not going to leave, the ability to generate more and more revenue from that account or client or customer is pretty impressive. And so you have traditional banks, whether it's Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, Citi, you know, a Goldman, a Morgan Stanley, or whoever, that their goal is to open up an account, sell you one product, even have it be a loss leader, not generate too much in terms of revenues and profits, but then to cross-sell you multiple products down the line that are incrementally positive. So you can look at a Robinhood that doesn't make any money 
on commission trading. Schwab and Ameritrade and E-Trade and Fidelity all followed suit when Robinhood went to zero commissions in the fall of 2019. But that doesn't mean that Robinhood doesn't make any money when they trade. And so there's payment for order flow. There's other ways to generate revenue. And so I don't think it's too late for banks to adapt. We are seeing some banks understand that fintech is the wave of the future that you have not just a week or a month or a quarter of growth, but literally you have years and decades ahead of growth. And payments is the perfect example. I mean, we could talk about just cash maybe for a moment. There's a great slide. We'll make it available in our presentation, but it's a slide that came out of MasterCard and a study that they did with BIS as well as McKinsey. And it said how much of global purchase transactions are done in cash. The metrics are really eye-opening. If you go back to 2006, 85.9% of total purchase transactions around the world were still done in cash. And then if you fast forwarded eight years to 2014, it was still 83.7% cash. And so as of today, it's estimated to be in the high 70s, but this is not a huge shift down in the use of cash. It's a slow and steady progression where cash is the market share donor, if you will, to digital payments. And, you know, there's some interesting countries in there. So you have Sweden, which is only at 6% cash, and they have a goal by 2023 to be totally cashless. And Finland and Denmark and in the Nordics are also very strong in their desire and use of cash to be cashless. But there are companies, developed countries that I think of as very sophisticated and institutional. You know, Japan is 82% cash. Germany is 84% cash. And like, just thinking of those developed countries still being dominant in cash usage is kind of eye-opening, at least to me. I mean, between that slow train and the fact that the fintechs, you know, kind of solutions appeal to, generally speaking, younger demographics who are just beginning, and then you add the loyalty that happens, no wonder Jamie Dimon's worried about the space. I, I mean, his banking clients are the older clients who will eventually turn their money over to the younger clients who may or may not have a relationship with the bank. In theory, that just means there could be a lot of M&A, but in some ways there's a lot, the valuations are so high that some of these M&A things probably may never happen. But, you know, that's probably a conversation for another day. Yeah, no, I think it's it's really important, even if we look at the U.S., just saying what is what's going on in our own country. 30% of transactions are still done in cash here in the US. And then if you look at it as size-wise, on transactions that are under $10 in size, 55% are still cash-based. So, you know, you're seeing this huge trend, whether it's millennials or Gen Z, that are embracing their phone as their leather wallet. And so that's a big theme that we like to talk about is I, I'm a huge fan of Seinfeld. And back in the day, if you recall, George Costanza in this one episode has this leather wallet that's like the size of a phone book. <laughs> and he's got receipts and gift cards and, and everything going on in his wallet. And I just, I love that picture in my mind because over the next five years, three to five to seven years, I fully anticipate 
no longer having to carry around a leather wallet in my jeans, I'll just take my phone. I already have my phone in my hand, in my pocket 24 seven. Now, if I can use that phone as my mobile-based payments for contactless payments using NFC, that is really, that's a big secular shift that we'll see going on in the marketplace. And that's being driven by millennials and Gen Z. A little bit of a, a shout out, we've got a team of interns here at Manole, and they're from Lehigh University, where I went to school, and my offices are right across from the University of Tampa. And so we have four interns from the University of Tampa this, this spring. And what we do is every year, this will be our fourth year of doing a Gen Z survey. So what we like to do is we like to quiz them, ask them questions about financial services, and we break it down into four parts, banking, brokerage, payments, and digital currencies, and really trying to understand what Gen Z thinks about those four subjects. That'll be coming out hopefully in the next month or so. It'll be our fourth year of doing it. And you know, for me, we really need to understand what the younger generations are thinking about, whether it comes to financial services, any of those four subjects. But I really do believe that in three to five years, your need to carry around a leather wallet will just disappear. Well, it's funny because in Asia, you know, with the QR codes and everything, I mean, it almost seems like the US, which is generally leading things, we seem to be lagging a little bit. I mean, it's probably a good time to talk about where you see the replacements for cash, you know, debit cards, credit cards, even the buy now, pay later names as well, if you guys have looked at those. I mean, that seems to be, you know, a particularly important part as people use less and less cash. What other alternatives do they have? And, you know, how do they use those? Yeah, no. So, you know, I always like to start to our earlier point, you know, Asia seems to be ahead of us a little bit. China has embraced QR codes. QR codes are really a Band-Aid. They were generated initially for manufacturing usage, not necessarily for payments, but um, they have been embraced in China, whether it's WeChat Pay or Alipay. Those are your two dominant payment platforms over there for mobile-based payments via QR codes. But just here in the US, what we're going to see is if you go back to 2000, every taxi you might have taken in New York City only took cash. And eventually they rolled out the ability to take credit cards and debit cards in a taxi. Then a decade later, 2009, Uber kind of launched in San Fran. New York City got Uber in 2011, and it got rid of the entire payment process when you were getting in and out of a car service for transportation. Then, you know, here in Florida, I'm based in Florida. In 2011, the Florida Turnpike no longer accepted cash. So got rid of all those workers that were standing on the road, toll booth collectors, and it all went to EasyPass and SunPass for collection of tolls. And really transportation is kind of the first and foremost way, at least that I look at it, as being the replacement for cash. So you have the MTA in New York City last year launched a their Omni program, which is one Metro New York. And in 472 subway stops in New York City and 6,000 buses and all of their trains, and by 2023, you no longer will be able to use Metro cards or tokens. It's all going to be contactless paying of your fare. And that could either be done with a credit card where you tap and go, or more likely, you're just going to use your phone 
for entry in the turnstile. So, you know, you're seeing it slowly but surely take over. And it's just the replacement of cash and towards digital payments, whether it's contactless or your phone. But those are just a couple of examples. I think transportation is a great kind of way where you see it on a daily basis. But it just goes to the point, the speed of change in fintech, and it's to your earlier point, is it too late for the banks to react? Things happen in payment land very, very slowly. Sometimes people think fintech is, it's a revolution. And for us, we think of fintech, it's more of an evolution. It's not a revolution. And give you a couple more examples. You know, mag stripes on the back of credit cards were invented in 1966 by IBM. But it took another 15 years later, not till 80, 81, were mag stripes really on the back of your credit and debit cards here in the US. And then, you know, most people know that chip and pin in your credit and debit cards, that's called EMV, Eurocard, MasterCard, Visa. That chip and pin was in Europe in the 90s, but didn't come to the US till October of 2015. So, you know, things happen in payment land very, very slowly. To my earlier point, while countries like the Nordics, and South Korea and even Singapore are embracing digital payments. China certainly has with their QR codes. Japan is still cash-based. So things happen very, very slowly. And you know the speed of change, it's never too late for a bank, a traditional financial, to understand that technology can materially improve their processes. I'm guessing, I'm going to guess here, that COVID, like in many industries, COVID will accelerate certain trends. So I'm curious what your views are, you know, how we're about, you know, what a, a little over a year anniversary from the beginning of COVID now, you right. know, how has COVID impacted the payments industry? I'm guessing it's been a positive and certainly it's pulled forward a lot of adoption, but I'm curious what your views are there. Yeah. So, um, Obviously, a global pandemic and COVID-19 has been brutal for the global economy, but our kind of interest in payments exposure um, did not change because of COVID. We've owned these names, many of these names for over 25 years. You know, if you go back, there's an article that you can read from the New York Times that was published in 1910, and it talked about the perils of paper and talking about the viruses that live on our currency. And then in 2011, the Federal Reserve of New York wrote a good note, a piece of research called Dirty Money. And it just went over, you know, viruses can live on paper. And now you have COVID and you look at, you know, COVID environment, paper currency here in the U.S., each bill touches 55 hands on average a year. A virus can live on paper currency for 72 hours. And even before COVID, the flu has been known to live on paper currency for 17 days. So, you know, COVID certainly has not been a positive for paper currency. The WHO instructed people early on in the um, COVID or corona crisis that after touching paper, they should immediately wash their hands. And so, you know, it's been a call it a tailwind for digital payment and a headwind for paper currency, this environment. But if you go back to 2019 
and you just looked at the point of sale devices that are in merchants here in the US, only 19% of them were equipped for contactless payments. So, you know, not even a fifth of merchants in the US who had point of sale devices on their countertop at the cashier were equipped for contactless. And then if you kind of look at where we are now, by the end of this year, half of the cards in the US will be able to do contactless. So it's a slow, steady progression, but COVID certainly has pushed, whether it's merchants or consumers, both want to use contactless payments. I don't want to go to a restaurant and hand my credit card over to a waiter or a waitress, have him or her take it to the back. God knows what they're going to do with my 16-digit code that's on the card, but I just don't want someone else touching my card. So the ability to transact contactless, where you are sliding your you know, card directly in for a chip and pin, or sliding it on the mag stripe, to me, it's a positive. And you've seen it on some of the, the metrics with cash, whether it's you know ATM usage is dramatically down, the use of cash is dramatically down, but COVID certainly has increased adoption of digital payments. And there was a great quote on the PayPal call from a couple of weeks ago, where they said they believed COVID helped to pull forward by a decade digital payments. If you think about some interesting trends and payments, it's hard to not mention Bitcoin given how popular it's become and the talk of whether it could be an alternative currency. Obviously, it's been a strong performer, albeit, you know, hella volatile. Can we weave in the digital currencies like the Bitcoin into the framework? Of yeah, the, absolutely. The yeah. So obviously that's pretty popular. Yeah. So uh, Bitcoin was up 300% last year. It's up another 70, 75% this year. So, you know, it's definitely uh, when I say I'm a fintech manager nowadays, the first thing out of everyone's mouth is, well, what do you think about Bitcoin? So I'm happy to kind of talk a little bit about it. And it goes back to what is a currency. And so if you look at currency for a second, in order to be considered a currency, you have to have two, there are two requirements in a way. One is you need to be a medium of exchange. So can you be an instrument that's used to facilitate the sale, the purchase, the trading of goods between parties? And the other is a store of value. And it's any asset that can smoothly maintain its economic value. And you mentioned it. I don't know if Bitcoin is smoothly maintaining its economic value. It seems to have a ton of volatility in it. But those are your two key requirements for a currency. Can it be a medium of exchange and a store of value? And so if you look just on the store of value side for a moment, Historically, we've used gold and precious metals as a store of value. You know, gold has other uses. So half of gold goes into jewelry production. Over a third of gold goes towards electronics. But, um, you know, volatility detracts from that concept being a, a store of value. And I think it goes back to the days when, you know, Britain got rid of the gold standard in 1931. We got rid of it a couple of years later, but really abandoned the uh, gold standard in 1973. Nowadays, people talk about Bitcoin as being a digital version of gold. 
And I'm not going to get into whether it is or is not. I just try to look at it as one, is it a store of value? And two, can it be a medium of exchange? And there's something to be said for the store of value, right? So there's 21 million total Bitcoins. Um, that's your fixed supply. Um, there's, I think they said 18 and a half million in circulation. Another two and a half million will be issued to miners over the next 120 years. And then they look at the supply of Bitcoin versus the supply of gold. And they talk about the market cap, if you will, of Bitcoin versus the market cap of gold. Gold is anywhere from 10 to $12 trillion. The market cap of Bitcoin just hit at this $50,000 plateau, about a trillion dollars. So it's certainly much less in supply. Both are really good, potentially hedges against inflation, you know, whether it's a fixed supply or inelastic supply of Bitcoin versus, you know, gold can be mined each and every year. I just look at it and say, I'm kind of coming around to a little bit of, of Bitcoin being a store of value. But where I really kind of challenge Bitcoin and all digital currencies is on this medium of exchange. Maybe it's because I'm, I'm fans of the payment companies that we're owning, but I look at a medium of exchange. Once again, you have to be, fiat currencies permit economies to function, right? So money can almost be considered a social contract. Some numbers came out this morning from MasterCard that I thought was interesting. MasterCard has this spending pulse data. Every month they come out and they said this morning, US retail sales in February were up 4.6% year over year. And then they said online retail sales were up 54.7%. And so to me, that's, you know, we'll talk a little bit about e-commerce maybe in a moment or two. But when I walk into a store, whether it's in the US or globally, MasterCard and Visa are accepted in 200 countries around the world. There's acceptance at over 40 million merchants around the world, where if I walk in with a MasterCard or a Visa piece of plastic, I can get a good or a service. I can't go ahead and walk into a, a Walgreens, a McDonald's, a CVS, a local restaurant and transact in Bitcoin. I don't know if we're ever really going to get there, but there's a great story. There's a guy, of course, it happened in Florida because all funky stuff seems to happen in Florida. But on May 22nd, back in 2010, a guy by the name of Laszlo Haynes, he bought two large Papa John's pizzas. And it was known as the first Bitcoin purchase of goods. And the two large Papa John's pizzas had a ton of toppings on it, but it costs about $25 for two large Papa John's pizzas. Well, on May 22nd, 2010, Laszlo used 10,000 Bitcoins to transact for his two large Papa John's pizzas. And so those two pizzas would be worth over $500 million. So the concept of using Bitcoin to transact at the point of sale, I'm not necessarily buying into that as a replacement or a medium of exchange or a replacement for our current payment systems. You know, Visa does 150 million transactions a day. That comes out to about 1,700 transactions per second. And it has the capacity to do 65,000 transactions per second. So it has spare capacity of 40 times on its network. 
you know, Bitcoin can do seven transactions a second. And each and every transaction adds onto its blockchain. And so the more transactions you do, the longer the blockchain, the longer the speed. And so I'm coming around to the concept of Bitcoin as a store of value. I'm not necessarily there on the medium of exchange. So I think a lot of people are, if they're buying Bitcoin, whether it's on Square Cash App or PayPal or Coinbase or Backed or whatever platform they're using to buy Bitcoin, I think they're doing it more as a store of value as opposed to potentially using it as a medium of exchange. When I hear the word store of value, it sounds really responsible. I wonder what percentage of the interest has just been pure momentum, making a lot of money, taking more risk, being rewarded, adding more risk, and then now being completely complacent about how much risk you actually are taking with Bitcoin. But that's another story for another day. <laughs> yeah. Now, there's definitely some FOMO going on. And uh, you are seeing more and more institutions um, dipping their toe uh, into, into Bitcoin. I think about a week or two ago, you saw Tesla come out and, and they purchased $1.5 billion of Bitcoin. Even Square, when they reported a week or two ago, purchased uh, 170 million more Bitcoin. But unlike Tesla, which Elon Musk did go ahead and say he would like to allow people to use Bitcoin to transact to buy a Tesla, Square with their Square Cash app is really trying to close the loop and trying to get their millions of merchants and 36 million Cash app users to kind of work together. And so they're using it almost like a a supply, if you will, of inventory and not necessarily a balance sheet uh, replacement as a store of value. Right, right. Listen, we only have a few more minutes. I'd love to maybe get into the e-commerce thing because obviously that is for 2020, e-commerce was, you know, one of the only games in town. But if you compare the e-commerce and the online buying and how that's gaining material share from, you know, the physical and brick and mortars, those would be some interesting data points. I mean, I, I know with the reopening, there's certainly pent up demand to get back into stores and just get back into the community. But that's more of a, I haven't been able to do it for a while and now I can, so I'm going to. But the larger trend of being able to transact online quickly, easily have it delivered to my door in record time. To me, that's that theme is just getting started and COVID just, you know, pulled forward so many millions of people into the flywheel and they experienced it in a wonderful fashion, which just makes them loyal. So curious what your views are on that particular part. Yeah, no, that's um, something we absolutely should talk about. We did mention contactless and mobile payments, and that's kind of, in my mind, tailwind number one, or as we look at kind of growth drivers of the payments industry, just that accelerating use of contactless and mobile-based payments. And the second one to me is e-commerce. There's a great slide that we have in this deck. It comes out of the U.S. Census Bureau of all places. And what they've done is they've looked at total U.S. retail sales. And you're talking about close to $6 trillion of spending in the U.S. on retail sales. And they look back at in 2010, 
e-commerce represented four and a half percent of those sales. And then, you know, five years later, 2015, it grew to 7.3%. And then, you know, five years later, by the end of 2019, it was at 11%. So e-commerce has continued to go up from a very small base, from four and a half percent to call it seven or eight percent. And now in a COVID environment, it got into the low teens. And so I don't know about you, if you're anything like my family, there's a package from Amazon outside of our door each and every day. And every time you transact online, you have to use a digital form of payment. Um, You can't use cash online. And so it has to come through our payment networks onto our merchant acquirers, our payment processors through our payment gateways. And so we just think that trend is going to continue for, once again, not weeks, days or weeks or or months or quarters, but this is a decade-long transition. And it's not going to be 100%. There will always be brick and mortar and physical locations. But I think people have now really gotten accustomed to the convenience of buying online, getting it shipped directly to their house. And for non-essential goods that I don't need today, but I can wait you know, a day or two or three to get, e-commerce is here to stay. And COVID almost accelerated that shift. And um, there will be some going back to the stores. We look at data that came out around the holiday season and it was pretty interesting. This company, uh, Sensormatic Solutions, uses drones and cameras to track foot traffic. And they found that foot traffic during the holiday season, in terms of shopping at brick and mortar physical retailers, was down 31%. And then foot traffic declined 39% on Black Friday. So, how much of that was due to COVID? And that'll change when this grand reopening happens. We'll wait and see. But I think there's a lot of people that are just now accustomed to whether it's Amazon Prime or Walmart and whether it's buy now or pay later or BOPIS or buy online, pick up in store. These are all trends that are spurring business away from cash towards digital payments and away from physical retailers towards online or at least omni-channel. Yeah, absolutely. And we spend a lot of time on that omni-channel you know, it's nice if you have a great brand and a highly recognizable brand, you don't have to do as much advertising because people know you're there and then they instantly go check to see if you have something digital, if they, you know, love your brand and, and need a product. If you don't have that brand, that was difficult because now you have to spend rapidly to build your online presence and that costs a lot of money from a technology and then from a marketing. So that's a bit of a double whammy, which is probably why Shopify has been so popular with smaller merchants. But listen, man, I could talk to you about this for another two hours, but thank you for taking that 30,000 foot view of the payments industry. Just, you know, for our listeners, you know, you do a ton of research and you have newsletters on your website. So for anybody that wants to get to know Manole a little bit more and read some of the things that they write about. I think they're pretty frequent, aren't they? Yeah, we do uh, a lot of thematic notes. We do obviously a quarterly investor newsletter. We do have on the website um, at manolecapital.com, we have stock specific pitches as well. You know, we, we're going to put this presentation, this death of cash presentation up there as well. But, you know, for us, maybe just to summarize, we view payments as the quintessential fintech business. 
we're really attracted to many of the names in the payment space because you know their models and outlook are secular in nature, not cyclical. We love businesses that generate recurring revenue, revenue per swipe, if you will, that are predictable and sustainable generators of free cash flow. Like we said it earlier, there's there's nothing that's recession proof, but these really are recession resistant. You know, before you think that, oh, I've missed out, you know, things in payment land do happen more evolutionary rather than revolutionary. And and COVID has definitely accelerated this digital shift, but we're still in the very early innings of that. And e-commerce is probably one of the biggest kind of tailwinds for our businesses, but so too are contactless payments, mobile-based payments, you know, just we didn't even talk about it today, but there's there's two and a half billion people around the world that are underserved by banks. And there's just this massive underserved addressable market. And it starts out, you know, with being able to do bill pay for people. The bill pay market, the B2B market is $125 trillion a year opportunity. And being able to pay bills is a big revenue generator for a lot of these payment companies. But, you know, P2P is very important, whether it's Square and Cash App or PayPal's Venmo or the bank's response, which is Zelle, um, money transfer, whether it's old school names like Western Union and MoneyGram or newer players out there. I just think that payment space has a lot of the traits that we look for. And those are just, we're, we're attracted to market leaders and companies that have durable competitive advantages, what Warren Buffett likes to say, companies that have a moat around their franchise or high barriers to entry and strong balance sheets. And once again, predictable recurring revenue, that free cash flow model that we're really attracted to. So we're happy to go ahead and and do a, another call with you at another point. But we would just say if anyone's interested in this space to take a look at our website, we've got a ton of research on there. Or if they want to reach out to me, um, my email is warren at manolecapital.com and we can uh, do a, a deeper dive into some of these payment names. Yeah, and, and Manole Capital is M-A-N-O-L-E capital.com, just for everybody. I mean, a good close, you know, in my opinion, it's so important as an investor to identify these huge secular themes. Yes, there's going to be volatility at times, but I mean, the bigger, the better the theme the more sustainable, the better. And, you know, we certainly look at the theme of consumer spending from a global perspective. It's, you know, like I said, over 40 trillion in scope. And you guys do it with laser precision in the fintech innovation. We certainly own names like Square and PayPal and Mercado Libre and C Limited, and then obviously MasterCard and Visa. And, and then even in some of the high tech names, there's some fintech slivers with Apple Pay and increasingly with Google and Amazon and even in Tencent. So there's lots of ways to get access to this theme, but having some specialization in the consumer and in the really important themes, one of which is fintech, to me is just it's just smart and it's logical. And you know the nice thing is the market has been selling off and now you're getting a pretty decent entry point into a lot of important themes. You know they've had good runs and they've pulled back as good companies tend to do sometimes when they get overheated. But uh, thanks, Warren. I really appreciate it. I absolutely would love to do it again. And the fun thing for both of us is both of our spaces are ever-changing. So we're never without some interesting content to be able to talk about either one of those themes. So we'll forever have lots of things to talk about. And, you know, investors love to have good information so they can make informed decisions 
about how they want to express their own views in the portfolio. Well, Eric, I, I really appreciated the time today. This was great. And look forward to doing it again with you guys. Thanks for listening Absolutely. to Mega Brands, Thanks everybody. I'm your again. host, Eric Clark. Okay. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the dynamic brand section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the dynamic brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.